everyone, and welcome to the Traceability Podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Edwards, and today we have my friend Steve Hotnut with us. Steve and I have known each other since our time serving on the board of the IIBA Salt Lake City chapter, and Steve was very instrumental in growing the chapter and also helped us get a BA Development Day hosted and have a successful event there. And he's a longtime BA and really happy to have him with us today. So welcome, Steve. Thank you, Tracy. Very glad to have you join us. And so typically how we start out here is how did you get your start as a BA? Is that really where you wanted to go in life? And how did that all work out? I never actually knew a business analyst was a career path, actually. I I started out as an accountant as an accounting major at Boise State University. And I went into financial planning and analysis at Hewlett Packard. And I worked there for for several years and then uh, relocated to Utah and stayed in the finance and accounting arena for a while. And then realized that there were a lot of people that did finance and accounting in this market. The salaries were, were not quite what I'd hoped them to be. And so by accident, I actually started implementing solutions at companies. So a payroll solution here, then started looking at process engineering, and then eventually went to work for a a large regional bank and became a full-time business analyst and then uh, became CBAP certified and uh, really got into looking at business analysis as a career. And the, the fun thing about that for me was that um, all of a sudden, I could be engaged in problem solving rather than problem identification. And I don't mean making the decisions about how to solve the problem, but having a lot more influence. Even in finance, we present the numbers and then the organization would determine what to do. And, and in business analysis, we can present the the scenarios, but also make some recommendations about some courses of action. So that was more exciting to me is, is actually having some some influence over decisions that were being made in organizations. Yeah, I very much uh, agree with you there on that. It's interesting to be able to to go in and actually help to facilitate problem solving and and have the conversation around approach and that kind of thing that we don't always get to have when we're in more targeted career paths, probably. Right. And I would always find myself saying, why do we do things this way? For example, in a call center, we spend so much money on taking care of customer calls. And we look at at how quickly can we resolve the issues and, and get the customer on their way. And I was always wondering, I would always ask the questions like, why? Why don't we try to understand more about the, the customer's organization so that then we can say, we have solutions here and here and here because contact centers are viewed as a cost center. And I was sitting there thinking, why is it only a cost center? Why are we not a revenue center? Why are we not generating revenue by improving and enhancing the customer's experience, not just in existing technologies, but in other technologies that might be able to enhance that environment? So very much a precursor to the whole concept of the voice of the customer. Right. Were you doing an analytics with that or, or really just trying to sort of understand customer perspectives? Yes, I didn't know where it fit. So I didn't know how to influence the organization. I knew that the organization needed to change, but I didn't know how to influence. If I look back, having the skills of a BA, 
I would have taken a, a completely different approach to the organization I worked with, and I would approach different stakeholders than I approached. I was approaching a set of stakeholders that were completely happy because their revenue was coming from contracts to support products, whereas I would have gone to the the product organization itself and said, hey, we can, this would really enhance our experience if we combined uh, our efforts with this division. And so, and so learning that, I was was really a precursor to say, how do we innovate within organizations? But I didn't know that's what it was called or that that's what it was at the time. It was just how I thought. And it's, it's how I continue to think is, is, you know, why do we do this the way we do? And I think disruptive innovation has to flow from that thought process within organizations. And that's really where my passion has come from in business analysis. So I was actually having a conversation with someone earlier today and, you know, we were talking about sometimes you engage with stakeholders, you're asking those why questions and they don't always appreciate those why questions. Did you find that you ran into maybe some perception of feeling threatened or anything as you were trying to ask some of these questions? I think it's a constant issue that we we deal with, right? Because, and the more mature the team, the more threatened they may feel. We've been doing this all along. And so we know what we want in our product, yet we recognize the flaws in what we've built in the past, but we're not ready to let go of that. That is a real challenge. And I, you know, I continue, I've dealt with it. I even deal with it to this day, you know, in terms of approach and really how, coming up with ways to pivot. And one of the things that I'm thinking about now as a, as a method is to ask simple questions on the intake that will help people pivot on their own. Because if I say, if I say I'm going to introduce this process to you, you're going to follow this process. The defenses go up automatically and they say, no, no, no. So, so I work with a team of designers. One of the things we're working on is, is, being able to ask these questions of where is your vision for this product three to five years out and what other technologies are impacted by this. And if they don't know these things, then we're trying to get them to think strategically, not just functionally, not just how do we hold this on, add this on and make this happen, but how do we, how do we provide an experience that drives uh, usability, but also long-term strategy integration, and ultimately market competitiveness. That's fantastic. I love that because it was sort of a similar conversation I had with someone else this weekend. That three and five-year plan, sometimes people haven't really gotten there. They're so kind of caught up in their current world kind of thing and, and trying to accomplish the business that's in front of them. And so what are maybe some of the techniques that you've used to kind of encourage that longer term thinking, especially if you're uh, still working in, say, a customer centric contact center environment, so to speak? Yeah. So I, I have tried to pull the product team much of the burden of requirements as I can. One of my challenges has been a, a very mature, like I, I mentioned, a very mature product team. So initiatives that I can take on on my own from end to end and really show delivery of value in terms of, of, of asking the why questions, in terms of, of, of finding what's working well and what's not working well, and actually going through and, and putting myself in the user experience 
so that I can say, this is really a good user experience. We don't always want to challenge everything to the, the stakeholder, but we really need to challenge those pain points. And so that's really what I've tried to do is, is focus on where do I have areas of, uh, of pain? And this is one of the things that, that I really like the work that, and, and for everybody who's, who's in business analysis, I will recommend Kristen Cox, her theory of constraints videos, where she talks about pain points and bottlenecks and, and areas that really need to ad be addressed because we can't be more efficient as an organization if we don't address those things. And so really, I like the approach to finding the bottlenecks or the pain points, the, the, the dissatisfiers, things that will cause somebody to discontinue a, an application for a product or something that will cause someone to just lose interest and fall out. And what are those, what are those points? And if we can identify those and go after those, also what may, what may be redundant in our processes, what may lack simplicity and uh, find those things. Because sometimes it takes more work to make a process simple than it does to make it complex. What, taking taking uh, steps out of a process can be very painful because you've got to look more at more detail in terms of what is not needed. It's easy to throw things in. And that's, that comes back to the theory that 80% of requirements go unused. Well, why does that happen? Because we didn't do the extra work to make the process more simple. We just added And I think a lot of that is driven, again, by that shorter term operational type thinking. As they're trying to understand sort of the short term analytics, I find what I've run into is... They want to respond to something that came up right in the moment, and they they often um, don't see the forest for the trees, kind of thing. Yeah, we and, and and sometimes we put too many too many stakeholders into into the equation, which the risk is okay. We don't we didn't speak to those those stakeholders, but but really determining that appropriate level. I've also found that, you know, we, when, we, when we talk about communication and, and we reach out to groups and organizations, this is a real frustrating point for BAs, so I need to really emphasize this. When we reach out to organizations and we say, you must engage, and that engagement does not occur, the best teaching tool for a team or an organization is the fear that it is not going to happen because they didn't, they didn't engage. Because... Because ultimately, as we're doing the things that we're doing, as we're communicating, if we don't set clear expectations and we don't say no, I mean, deadline means deadline. If we're operating to deadlines, how can we do that if we don't expect our teams to operate to deadlines? And I mean, last second, you know, we're throwing this in because I was I was engaged for three months and didn't say anything until the, because I didn't bother to read the requirements till the last minute. We have to set those expectations clearly at the beginning, and we have to stick with them because a part of accountability means being accountable. And, and regardless of how high up in the food chain the organization is, when budgets are budgets and timelines are timelines, stakeholders have to abide by that as well. Mm -hmm. so, I know that so, yeah, our communication is critical there. Yeah, I know that I have bumped up against that uh, quite a bit in some of my recent uh, job experiences. 
you know, sort of the engagement goes both ways kind of thing. We need to get them to engage, but we need to also make them feel that it's worth their while to engage and that it's a win for them as well as for us. Right. And, and, and I'm not saying this is simplistic because, you know, obviously we'd love it to be right. And then you have the screaming that happens at the last minute that that weren't included, but, but it's why that, that communication and directives are so important that we get everybody on the page and um, you know, whether that, if that comes from a, a, an agreement early on, a contract, whatever it takes, if they're important enough to be involved and they're important enough to be involved all the process. And, and that I think is every BA's pet peeve is that we find, you know, other things to work on until the very last minute and then we'll read the requirements and, oh, it's so easy to change. And it's not, it's not, it's not easy to pivot. And it, it's harder to pivot, and and that's why we, that's why we engage these stakeholders at the beginning, and it's one of the most difficult behaviors to change. And frankly, because because I said just said those things, doesn't mean that I'm not left in position where we're including those changes at the last minute. Right. So speaking of pivoting, let's maybe go a bit broader with with that topic. What are some sort of situations in your career journey? where you've had to sort of understand where and when to pivot? Yeah, I think the hard part is still as a business analyst is, is, you know, I get to make recommendations, but I don't get to vote on the decisions. And sometimes that's hard because you have to pivot and realize the decision makers make the decision. And I think, I think if, you know, if there's one thing I could say is even sometimes, even though our decision makers don't may not know that and we can tell them that and coach them that along the way it's still very hard for people to give up uh, the control of even the analysis work we want the decision or we want this because instead of focusing on the problem we f- we focus on the and so it's it's the the pivoting to the fact that we don't have a vote and sometimes that does means we may not even have a vote in the amount of analytical work that we're enabled to perform, if that makes sense. And that's a hard pivot because, you know, we're asked for our expertise on one, one, one count. And on the other count, sometimes there's an unwillingness to really let that analysis work go. And, you know, it's kind of like the early on in the conversation when we were talking about the, why are you doing this? Even when we provide the full analysis, why are you providing this to me? I know what I want already. How do we, how do we constantly enlighten uh, without throwing? the stakeholders. I think something that has often been sort of a challenge for me as as a BA is feeling like the project is already well underway by the time they decide that they want some business analysis on it. They've already decided on a vendor. They've already um, decided on a business case and a cost estimate and that kind of thing. And I can, I can feel a bit frustrated in those situations because I wasn't able to necessarily provide some more upfront guidance. How have you sort of dealt with similar situations and maybe how have you had to adjust or make a change to to feel a little more satisfaction? One of the things I did, I worked for an organization that was actually pretty good at, at starting projects. And they had a checklist of things that had to be done before a 
project was started. And in that checklist, one of the questions they asked was, has a project manager been been assigned? Now that, uh, as a business analyst, that that sent huge red flags up my spine because my, and I always suggested to the organization, I think they're, the more pertinent question is, has a business analyst been assigned? We don't need a project manager until we've established that we need a project. And so, um, so that was one of the things that that I would ask related to that. But, you know, in terms of being, you know, involved earlier, I think that is the most, com- you, you, you suggested one of the most common uh, scenarios. And it's, it's really, you know, as a business analyst, you kind of feel like a doctor. I don't know if you feel like that sometimes, Tracy, but when when folks come to you and the project's already underway, you already see some of the symptoms of what happened with without analyzing the problem. The problem, and I think that's the nature to say we'd like to be able to give the the prescription and then follow the patient all the way all the way through. Whereas you know now we've got a patient who's got some conditions because analysis analysis work wasn't done, and we've got to try to uh, work with a more limited set of tools. Whereas when we when we look earlier, uh, I'll give you an example. Say a company is looking to apply a communication methodology and they say, okay, we need to communicate. So we need to be able to send emails and text messages. Well, there are so many ways we can communicate. We can use WhatsApp, we can use chat, we can use text, we can use email, but they've already said, let me limit my, the ways I can communicate. So I've chosen a communications method that will that will allow me to limit myself instead of suggesting I need to send a message from point A to point B. What's the most effective way to do that? And what methods coming along are going to make it even more effective? You know, we're using email. We need, you know, does it integrate with our CRM tool? Do all of our departments have a history of what messaging has been sent? Can we view, can we view that history? Are we complying with privacy rules and regulations? Are we uh, GDPR, CCPA compliant? So all of a sudden we have all these things to think about. And if we bring some of these things in as an afterthought, you know, we're missing, we're kind of missing the boat. And I don't know if you've run into this as well. Maybe talk about sometimes when you've run into some vended solutions. I, I know vended solutions are kind of all the rage right now. And I don't know your perspective, but I find that they buy a big product, but don't necessarily need everything about the big product, or they buy multiple big products that all do similar things. Have you run into things like that? And how have you maybe attempted to resolve some of the potential conflict? Yes. And one of the big challenges is we buy a vended product and then we want to make it fit what we want to do. And I, and I, I run into that several times where we go, we buy an off the shelf product. It doesn't have some of the capabilities we need for a certain, some a group of stakeholders, for example, ran into this complete group of stakeholders, not engaged in the pro- procurement process. A process was bought four months later, they decided they needed an analyst to come in. The analyst starts meeting with, which was me, starts meeting with another group of stakeholders. They said, nobody talked to us about this solution. They bought the solution because they thought it could be tailored to this one group of stakeholders' needs. And after doing a lot of work on it, 
it was not a suitable solution for them. It was causing a lot of angst and frustration. Of course, of course, they liked me as an analyst because I brought them to the table, but I could not fix the problems that were, were would not be resolved with this particular solution. And so, and so then we, we think we can start customizing these off-the-shelf solutions as opposed to backing up and saying, what does the solution do? How could our organization be aligned to the solution? No, we say, well, we want to do it our way. I think off-the-shelf solutions are great, but are we prepared to mirror our organization to the technology as opposed to the technology to the organization? One of the great podcasts that I like is O'Shaughnessy on the O'Shaughnessy Investment Podcast. And one of the podcasts that, that they had talks about the concept of build or die. You know, if you're not building your software to evolve in the marketplace, you're really going to die. And, and you know, when, when off-the-shelf solutions don't work, you really have to think about, you know, can we, can we build this? Uh, that, which is why I think it's so important that if, we, if we're going to look at an off-the-shelf software, we need to look, can we do 90% of what we want to do with the off-the-shelf, 80 to 90%? And are we willing to give up the 10 to 20% so we can optimize what this was built to do? Otherwise, we're going contrary to uh, the intent of the software, the whole purposing of it. Yeah, I very much agree. And I know that as I've run into some of those situations, those have been some of the things that have maybe caused me most of the career dissatisfaction that I can on occasion run into because I have felt sort of difficulty having influence over some of those conversations. So maybe speak to, as you have perhaps run into times of dissatisfaction in your career for one reason or another, how have you sort of addressed those from a career longevity kind of perspective? Yeah, it's, it's something that I think all BAs, I think, will, will run into a level of dissatisfaction with because of not being the decision maker. And I think, I think it's really interesting to watch organization and team players that look for that, that expertise and value those type of relationships and build them. And so you have to be willing to put in work and time because sometimes those relationships aren't going to come in three months or six months or nine months. You know, maybe it's going to take a year or, or a year and a half to, you know, getting some, I hate to say domain expertise because sometimes by the time we've developed domain expertise, we become a little bit bored, but I think sometimes it does take that, and then, and then being able to then, as we gain that knowledge and expertise, we can start providing concepts and ideas to teams, especially more mature teams, because you now understand how their their organization operates and the types of of decisions they're trying to make, and that some of that only comes through time. And so, I think that's one of the key pieces of advice I would give. But I would also look for look for organizations that value your expertise. And this is the biggest learning experience I had was joining the leadership of the IIBA because I was able to reach out and work with other uh, team members who had experience building this type of collateral with their stakeholders. And, and that's, I think that learning 
experience is extremely valued. I really like the point that you made there. Often it can just take a long time to build those trusted relationships where they know that they can kind of rely on you to ask uh, the right kind of questions. And and sometimes uh, maybe we don't put the effort into the relationship building that we need to because we're so in a hurry to make an impact, <laughs> so to speak. And I, think, and I think, Tracy, we can see, we as a business analyst coming in, and this is why we do the work, and it's one of the strengths we have is is we we know how to identify issues rather quickly, and we can identify issues that that the teams we work with don't necessarily see, but also just like with ourselves, when truths become you know when 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 truths have long been evident that we didn't see our, in ourselves, it's very difficult to make those changes quickly, and nor, nor do we necessarily want to be told that we need to make those those changes quickly. And so it's hard to remember that. That's a hard thing is to remember that that we don't want to pivot quickly, just like our stakeholders may not want to pivot quickly. And that's why the longevity, we can get to the problems really quickly. I think anybody who's been doing this for a long time knows how to how to point things out and say, oh wow, that's that that's painful. Why are we doing things this way? And um, and we could based on our learnings, we could sure do do things differently. The other thing that we learn is is the pivot because it's done incorrectly. The pivot to correction may not be fast, and it may not be painless because we may have to build out a new platform. We may have to introduce new tools, and we may have to do things that take a while. And we and we've got to keep the the airplane flying at the same time. You know that's a, a dynamic we have to remember as we go through this. Switching to another topic, sort of, as we're in times like we're in right now, something that has been on my mind a lot is sort of, what are the things that I need to do to sort of recession-proof my career path, so to speak? And and so sort of wondering, what are some recommendations you would give for folks as we're sort of in the challenging times that we're in? What can we do to make ourselves indispensable? I'm really glad you asked that that question, Tracy. This has been on my mind a lot. And we are going to have friends, neighbors who have businesses that are going to need to make hard decisions and not necessarily have, have capital for that. But I think if we use the questions that we can ask and the skills that we have, not for big companies that a lot of BAs work for, but with some, but say, how could we help our friend's business, our neighbor's business, and not necessarily looking at it for a, from a profit motive, but looking at it from a they need help motive. This may be the fundamental time where the greatest amount of innovation actually occurs that was never thought of. How do we help with that? How do we help ask questions about better delivery methods for businesses? How do we, about streamlining operations, how do we talk to them about looking at different technologies may that may exist that they haven't thought about before and just thinking about it as defining the challenges that that those friends of ours that are in business face and really isolating those issues and honing our skills with them because if we can bring value to our friends and neighbors they're going to be some of our biggest cheerleaders in return right and we can go back to the market with high rec- recommendations but also maybe we've 
maybe we really improve the position of those who were very vulnerable coming into this, right? So that's one of the things I've I've been thinking about a lot is is how could I without going in with a profit or a financial motive in addition to my day job, how could I look out for, for using the skills that I have to solve problems for, for, for others? That has been on my mind a lot as, as well as what can I do to serve and what can I do to help folks that have run into a challenging situation in their businesses and, and that kind of thing. And I've also sort of just had the impression that Really, this is why we have times like this. This is opportunities for us to sort of use our toolbox and rise to the occasion. And it, it sounds like your advice is, is very similar. I think some of the greatest innovations that we see are going to come out of, come from this long term. You know, what that looks like, I can't tell you because I'm not a, I'm not a futurist, but, but I, I, I can say that along those lines, without going into too much detail, one of the things I've thought about is how can I facilitate successful new businesses starting from this for individuals that may have never considered owning a business before? or And, and so I'm working on some things along those lines that I'm very, very excited about, that everything from back office to, to instantiation. So, so, so I think there are with every you know thing that happens like this, there are things that can be taught. There can be things taught about capital preservation. Am I am I over leveraged? Am I leveraged properly so that in business I can go forward? I know a business owner from my own family uh, who was a very long time proponent of of no debt in his business. So when he saw times like this come, he was the most profitable because. All of his competitors were very highly leveraged. So, and so it brings new opportunity to folks who think maybe differently or contrarian. You know, and I and, and I feel feel badly for for businesses that are highly leveraged, but you know, and sometimes it takes leverage to to be innovative at the same time, right? You can't say, you can't say leverage is bad, but you can say, Am I thinking about things in terms of all possible scenarios? That we could encounter. Right. And sort of the long-term strategic leverage and uh, what is an acceptable risk <laughs> type of thing to take on. You know, and the other, the other thing, you know, we talk about pivots and, and I want to go back to that talk, if I, if I may, for a minute. one of the big pivots I've had is organizations as a BA, you know, one of the things I think that we can really add value to the organization, if we can do it at a high enough level, is come back to the organization in terms of what is our strategy? Because, you know, if if we have a strategy that includes five to seven elements, which is a reasonable number of strategic initiatives for, for an organization, I think one of the things we need to ask is, are all of the initiatives that are underway in the organization or do they reflect the strategy that we have? Just because a new payroll system may give us a good return over over you know fifteen or eighteen or twenty four months you know after it's implemented, but if that payroll system takes capital away from other initiatives like growing revenue or gaining market share or other things 
we need to be doing in the organization. We need to be prepared to ask where strategically do our investment dollars align to our strategy? Can we call it back? One organization I worked with, which I think their threshold was too low based on the size of the organization, but any project over $100,000 had to either show an ROI or it had to uh, tie back to a regulatory or, or compliance requirement. Now, I would add one more thing that that organization could have benefited from, which is tying it also to a strategic initiative of the organization. Because even though we get a savings or, or we get a return, do we get a return in the area that we strategically feel is important? Because doing that, adding that one element really is is what you know operational efficiency is about. And so, and so that's one of the things I would I would add as well is is get our business to focus on its strategy, even if it's only our our department that we work in or or our organization that we're helping them say, how does this meet our, not only why are we doing this, but how does this meet our operational strategy? And, and you might, they might feel very threatened asking that question, but really you're just helping the business. Right. I very much agree with that. That's a very um, business architecture type of mentality where we're trying to align our capabilities and our projects with the vision that we have for the organization and the strategy that we're taking to get there. And I agree that often that strategic tieback is missed <laughs> and, and that, can, that can be a little frustrating for those of us who are sort of those more strategic thinking types. Especially when we're looking at traceability. Right. Tracing to, tracing to the, um, the overall overarching goals and objectives of the yeah. organization. Yeah, for sure. So as we wrap up, maybe speak to some of the things you've got going on in the future and where things are going for you right now. Yeah, one of the things that I'm really, you know, I'm, I'm definitely busy, um, spread pretty thin among different that I'm working on. But, but um, one of the things I'm passionate about is the kind of the initiative that I, that I mentioned is, is starting to build, you know, I built, organ- built uh, applications and, and capabilities for for large companies on a on a regular basis and now i'm uh, actually doing one on my own that will help folks come out of this you know come out of this time that we're into so that's one of the goals and objectives that i'm working on so i've started my own company savvy iq that's been been fun i'm definitely very busy passionate about looking at sectors things that are happening looking at markets as well markets are evolving we're seeing interesting things happen there. I mean, the price of oil at ten dollars a barrel. I, you know, the interesting things that we'd have never thought thought uh, possible. Implications of that, you know, where does where does what does that do, you know, long term to energy sectors and and things of that. So it's just really interesting that if we if we keep our eyes out for what trends there are and what's evolving, going back to that marketability question, I think we will see. I mean, this isn't going to last forever. Eventually, it's going to go away. And so, so I mean, in the short term, I think we need to say what problems are out there that need to be solved because, because it, now people need leaders more than anything else. They don't need people to hide in fear. They need people to say, how do we tackle this? Let's go out. Just like, just like after, after an earthquake or after a tornado or after, how do we go? And I think that's the mindset 
we have to have, just like after a, a hurricane. How do we go and, and rebuild and, and pick this thing up and 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 find solutions that are going to uh, solve people's problems? That's a terrific note to end it on. Look for the solution builders and uh, the the people who are um, going to lead us in uh, the positive uh, direction of getting everything uh, back together again. So Steve, how can folks find you? They can find me on LinkedIn and we can provide a, an address for my LinkedIn profile. They can also find me at stephenkhodnet at gmail.com or at thesavvyiq at gmail.com. Fantastic. And we will make sure that that gets uploaded to the show notes. So tell me about uh, the Savvy IQ and and how's that going for you? It's going great. This is just a a little company that I've started where I find that uh, there are lots of opportunities in business analysis to uh, work with, with clients and define the challenges of their business environment and ways to navigate through that. Well, that's very exciting. Congratulations on that. And for our listeners, if something from our conversation resonated with you, your call to action today is to leave us a comment at our website, traceabilitypodcast.com, or send me an email at tracy, T-R-A-C-I-E, at traceabilitypodcast.com, or reach out to Steve directly. I know he'd be really... uh, anxious to hear your feedback and have a conversation with you. That would be fantastic. Thanks, Steve, so much for your time. Yes, thank you, Tracy.